Welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order, and then we rank them from best to worst. My name's Sarah. And I'm Ben. Thanks for listening to us today and joining us. Yes. How are you doing, Ben? I'm doing pretty good today, all things considered. Yeah, all things. How are are you doing? Trying to explain to certain people in my life that yes social distancing is hard that is the point don't go into people's houses don't have them come into your house yeah it's it's not meant to be easy it's a sacrifice that we're all making together to stop people from dying yes because people are literally dying and they don't seem to understand that they are not any different. Mm. They are not exempt mm-hmm. of the danger. Yeah, and even if you aren't sick, like, you're still a disease vector. Yeah. You yeah. could pass it on to someone who would be... I'm sure that people have had enough of that kind of stuff outside of this podcast. Let's not Very get true. into it. Um, but yeah, so I'm a little riled up. So I'm sure that we'll be fine from recording this podcast. Yeah. One fun thing that happened to me is that um, there's a, a podcast called Kyle and Dave versus the Machine. Kyle built this machine, and it's gone completely wrong. It's now kidnapped Kyle and Dave and is forcing them to travel back to 1999 to watch movies from that year and discuss them. Yes. Um, and this machine came into my house and took me along for a little bit of a ride. Yes. And forced me to discuss the 1999 The Mummy with Kyle and Dave. Right, which you would have done anyways if asked, but... But the the thing is that the machine did not ask. Mm-hmm. It just meat morphed me into the machine. Right. I am the ghost in the machine. Right. Not anymore. It released me after I had the discussion. Um, but I think that episode of that podcast will be released in a week or so. But keep your eyes on the Scream Scene Twitter page, at underscore Scream Scene, and we'll definitely share it there. Yeah, and, uh, you know, listen to the episode, hear Sarah talk about the 1999 Mummy, which is all she really wants to talk about. (laughs) And, you know, check out the other episodes of the show. Yeah, it's a very cool show, despite this kidnapping machine. Mm Mm-hmm. I do blame Kyle. Fair. Yeah, he's the maker. Mm Mm-hmm. Anyways... What are we watching today? Well, Sarah, I got a bit of a surprise for you, because at the end of last week's episode, I said that we would be watching Bride of the Gorilla today. Uh, But uh, we are going to be watching something else. Uh, Oh, thank God. Just one of those occasions when something slipped through the cracks in terms of my research of what was coming up, but I managed to catch it just in time. Uh, And I... think that this is a risk we're going to have a lot in the 1950s due to the significant overlap and confusion between horror and sci-fi. Okay, so like looking back and seeing like, no, this is actually sci-fi, I won't put this on the list for us to watch. Or like... Oh, this is horror, let's put this on the list. Yeah, um, certainly there's going to be a lot of stuff that's both, Mm -hmm. uh, like Thing from Another World from last week. 
then you have stuff that's definitely just sci-fi, even if it does involve, like, a killer robot, like The Day the Earth Stood Still, right? And then, I thought the robot was there in peace. No, the alien is there in peace. The robot works for the alien. But you haven't seen the I haven't seen still. it, yeah. We should watch it. Okay. And then you have stuff that's, like, clearly just horror, like uh, Bride of the Gorilla. But where it's going to get complicated is sort of the middle section, especially with the monster genre that's coming up in terms of, like, the, the giant monsters. Yeah. And the alien invasion genre with all these alien monsters coming from outer space because, you know, War of the Worlds, I wouldn't say, is a horror movie, even though the invading aliens there are not benevolent. So, you know, the the adage from episode one about I know it when I see it is going to come in a lot, I think, and we're going to have stuff like where something maybe didn't catch my eye because I didn't consider it horror, but maybe I should have, it, we're going to have some some interesting times. And I think today's episode, today's movie, is going to be a really good case study to kind of establish some guidelines for us about, like, what pushes something, you know, towards horror from sci-fi. I mean, granted, it's totally possible for something to be both, but, like, what makes it enough horror to be horror, right? Yeah, sure. So, well, what are we watching? Today's movie is The Man from Planet X from 1951. I think this is the first appearance of, like, the term Planet X in the title of a movie. The first, like, ever use of the term Planet X comes from the search for a trans-Neptune planet that would make the orbits of Uranus and Neptune make sense. Um, before the discovery of Pluto. and Oh, it was like, well, we, we think that there's going to be a planet, so we'll yes. just call it X as in, like, the algebra X... Unknown. Unknown. Yeah, exactly. Oh, okay. Um, I did not know that. So... Space is cool, but terrifying. <laughs> well, then... It's you, just so big. You are right in line with kind of the 1950s zeitgeist then, Sarah. Wonderful. Because everybody wants to do stuff about space, but definitely it's there to be scary, because 1951 was sort of the year for movies about invaders from space. The sci-fi genre had hit Hollywood in a big way the year before with Destination Moon, mm -hmm. which was kind of the first like major Hollywood sci-fi A picture, um, and is a very like cool movie to go see. Although it's very like dry, it's trying to be like very realistic about like what would a trip to the moon really be, and people in 1950 like didn't really understand all of that a lot so like big sections of the movie are taken up to like explain that there's no air in space and no gravity in space and like here's how things will work and stuff like that um what do you mean the moon isn't made out of cheese right so it's not it's it's almost like docudrama in a way yeah it's still really cool yeah and quickly after that you know sci-fi started to become more sensationalist and 1951 is when we started seeing movies about aliens coming to Earth from outer space because of Hollywood kind of figuring out that space was kind of boring if there was nothing in it. Now, we didn't talk about this in the Thing from Another World episode, mm -hmm. um, but I think it, it might be good for us to talk about because we did it with ghosts. So, Ben, do you believe in aliens? Um, so... Like, yes and no. Okay. 
I mean, it, it all comes down to like, what are you defining as aliens? But if the question is, do I think humans are the only intelligent life in the universe? The answer is no, because I think that's mathematically improbable, uh, as proven by the Drake equation. You used to call me on my cell phone. <laughs> Sorry, I'm, I was just thinking of like the singer. And it's also like really hubristic. Um, it's sort really of full of ourselves. Yeah, well, it comes to that like sort of medieval Christian view of the universe is like everything has been created just for us. Like the the stars in the sky exist only to make our nights pretty kind of view of the world. If the question is, is Earth the only planet that can support life? I think, again, the answer is probably no. Which is to say, like, even if there isn't uh, other intelligent civilizations, I still think there's probably life out there in space. Have aliens visited Earth? My answer on that is no. I don't believe in... UFOs, I don't believe in alien abductions, I don't believe in government cover-ups of UFOs okay. and alien abductions. <laughs> I was going to say, is there an asterisk there? I don't or? believe in the extraterrestrials building the pyramids, I don't believe in, in any of that stuff. I don't believe in the, like, Eric Von Danigan, Gene Roddenberry, like, oh, gods of the past were inspired by aliens coming to Earth. Because if you just do the anthropology and look at the way cultures develop over time, you don't need those explanations at all. And they even make less sense, really. Yeah. And again, it's a little... Um... It's, it's the opposite of the, like, the universe is made for us problem, where now we're too stupid to figure out anything for ourselves, so we need alien help to come and, like, do it for us or whatever. Yeah, yeah. And the aliens never, like are giving credit for, I don't know, like, building the Parthenon or, like, you know, building the the Hadrian's Wall or Stonehenge. It's always they're giving credit for building things that, like, non-white people built, you know? So it's it's some pretty suspect bullshit racist nonsense. Yeah. How about you? Are you a, a UFO true believer? <laughs> so I'm with you that I believe that humans are not the only intelligent beings in the universe and mm -hmm. not the only forms of life in the universe. I really like the episodes of Star Trek where, or any kind of science fiction where they posit forms of life that we can't even comprehend. Right, that are truly alien. Yeah, like whether that's Solaris or the magma monster in uh, Star Trek. Uh, yeah, the Horda. Yeah. Uh, or, or Arrival. You really like Arrival. I really like Arrival. Um... Because, yeah, there's no way that we are the only ones. Have aliens visited Earth? I think that if there is intelligent life out there in the universe, they are probably just as curious about what's out there as mm -hmm. we are. So I would not be surprised if they had visited Earth. But I don't believe that that's why we have the pyramids or anything sure. like that. Um, I'm happy to say I don't know if they w have visited Earth, or currently visit, or um, do abductions. There are many things in the world that I don't know, and many of those things exist, like math. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, I, I think it's highly improbable, sure. but I wouldn't say impossible. Um, I think the thing to always remember is that, like, you know, we think about aliens as being a science fiction concept, 
But uh, I just mentioned something called the Drake equation. That's just like a mathematical probability equation that says it's mathematically improbable for there to be no other intelligent life forms. What is mathematically impossible is faster than light travel, which is like a staple of sci-fi so that you can have like reasonable stories. So if you want to believe that aliens have come to visit Earth, you have to believe that they spent hundreds and hundreds of years doing it, um, which then makes the idea that they're just here to like do some experiments and see what happens if we put a probe up someone's butt and then like catch and release us back into the wild, <laughs> like really absurd and weird to me personally, or like the idea that they'd be doing anything quietly or secretly. Like I, I think before they were to come to earth, there would be probes. Yeah. And, and I don't think they have like, unless the, that, you could argue are UFOs that we see, right? But um, or or have possible evidence for. I just think that if you look at the history of what makes people do difficult things like that, it's you know resources and money and the need to, you know, you have to be able to get something out of the trip, right? Like Columbus comes to the New World for gold and spices and when he doesn't find any he realizes he needs something and that turns into um exploitation of of indigenous peoples but regardless like the indigenous peoples knew he showed up you know and i feel like <laughs> you know if you had a, a a peoples who had come all this way because they needed to exploit the planet for resources or or something like that we we probably know that's my position is just the they wouldn't be secretive about it. It doesn't make sense for me that it would be, like, a big secret. Dialing it back... <laughs> yes, let's... Okay, cool. I, I just thought it was good for us to clarify. Oh, absolutely. So, yeah, so... Aliens. Aliens. Uh, you need them for good stories. Aliens! <laughs> you need them for stories. And so 1951 is the year where we start seeing that. Howard Hawks' The Thing from Another World entered production in 1950... And as we established last week, was released April 27th, 1951, by RKO. Its philosophical opposite, The Day the Earth Stood Still, which was directed by Luton luminary Robert Wise, uh, was released by 20th Century Fox later that same year, uh, September 18th, 1951. Both of these were major A pictures from, like, studio releases, you know, announcing the arrival of the sci-fi genre, basically. Um, both of these films required a large amount of production time due to the special effects needed to produce good quality science fiction films. Yeah. Uh, the thing in particular was plagued with delays due to the inavailability of snow, but because of those delays, we get this movie. So enter writers Aubrey Wisberg and Jack Pollocksfen, who as writers working in Hollywood heard about the delays on the thing, because you know, you just you hear what's going on, and they wondered if maybe they couldn't make something cheap and quick and beat both of the big upcoming Hollywood A-picture movies about alien invasions to theaters. So this is a Transmorphers. Yes. This is 100% the 1950s equivalent of, like, your Asylum mockbuster movies. Absolutely. Uh, in fact, 
the title, The Man from Planet X, is very much designed to sound like The Thing from Another World. For sure. So, uh, Aubrey Wisberg had been writing in Hollywood since 1942, while Jack Pollockson was actually a journalist who turned screenwriter after the war. The two of them had collaborated before on the script for 1949's Treasure of Monte Cristo, followed by 1950's The Desert Hawk, both of which are like cheap adventure movies. Yeah, that's what they sound like. The the main thing here was making a movie about an alien coming to Earth mm-hmm. before these two other films, because that was the thing someone hadn't done yet, right? And so, uh, in order to get it made, the two men founded a production company together called Mid-Century Films, and so that was going to be like the, the company that would make the movie. Um, they sort of intentionally designed the marketing around it to resemble the thing from another world. And when they were trying to get investors, they had these like pitch documents that went out that refer to the alien in their movie as a thing. Sure. They rented the sets from the recent Ingrid Bergman version of Joan of Arc. <laughs> Just these like, um, outdoor cave and castle sets. Um, castle. <laughs> Uh, They got these sets rented for a six-day shoot, and to direct the film, they hired Edgar G. Ulmer, late of the Producers Releasing Corporation. We've heard him before? Yes. We've heard of him before? Long-time Scream Scene listeners will remember Ulmer from his 1934 film The Black Cat, which is currently ranked number eight on the list, and we covered it way back in episode 45. Wow. That's over 100 episodes ago. Yeah, so I thought I would just refresh our memories on Edgar G. Ulmer. Yeah. So Edgar G. Ulmer was born in 1904 in what was then the Austro-Hungarian Empire, and he studied architecture and philosophy in Vienna while working as a stage actor and set designer. He did set design for Max Reinhardt's theater, uh, and from there moved into film, working for directors like F.W. Murnau, Paul Wigner, Fritz Lang, Robert Siedmack, and Billy Wilder. When F.W. Murnau went to Hollywood, Ulmer came along with him to create the sets for Sunrise and stayed. Uh, Given that he was Jewish, it was a probably good decision long term. His first feature film as a director was 1933's Damaged Lives, a film about the dangers of venereal disease that had been produced by the Canadian Social Health Council. (laughs) Weird things, man. I believe everyone dies in the end. Of course, they had sex. His second feature film was The Black Cat, starring Bela Lugosi and Boris Karloff for Universal. Uh, And that is... That's a movie. That's a real good movie. Yeah. Uh, The film was the biggest hit of the year for Universal, despite multiple problems with the censors. But Almer had begun an affair with Shirley Kassler, who was the wife of studio boss Carl Lemley's nephew. Oh, but <laughs> why? Now, it was probably fine, except that then the Kasslers divorced and Shirley married Almer. And that resulted in Carl Lemley basically getting Edgar G. Almer, like, exiled from the major Hollywood studios. Yeah. So, uh, he was only able to find work on Poverty Row. 
his films in the late 1930s were like ethnic movies, basically. Um, films produced for immigrant audiences like Hungarian Americans and Ukrainian Americans and stuff like that. Okay, I can um, see why they would have him do those. Yeah, uh, and then he sort of eventually clawed his way up to a niche directing melodramas for PRC, the Producers Releasing Corporation, the lowest of the low among the Poverty Row Studios, but still like a step up from like... Independent? Yeah. And he kind of got this reputation for making films that punched above their weight class, you know, having tiny budgets and just like tight shooting schedules, but still producing stuff that like felt a lot more ambitious or had like a lot more style or just like a lot more going on than most other Poverty Row guys. He's kind of the opposite of William Bodine. Sure. Like both of these guys are like one-time A-movie directors who got kicked down to Poverty Row. And Edgar G. Ulmer's thing was like, well, I'm going to make the best cheap-ass movies I can. And William Bodine was like, ah, nothing really matters. Okay. I don't think it should be surprising that Ulmer knows how to stretch a thin budget because he made set pieces in theater. Right. <laughs> you, you learn how to string things together. Colleagues actually observed that the faster Ulmer worked, uh, the better he was, like the shorter the schedule, because when the schedule got longer and he had more time to think about like what shots he wanted and what he wanted things to look like and how he wanted the actors to perform, he sort of had a lot of self-doubt that mm. would come in and he would second guess himself and things would actually get really delayed. Whereas if you just told him like, hey, you've only got so much time, he would just do it. His most acclaimed film from this period is 1945's Detour, uh, a famous film noir shot in 14 days for under $100,000. And it's good. Yeah, it's very good. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's very compelling. Yeah, there's a reason people remember it today. There's a reason it's in the Criterion Collection. Um, but he made a bunch of movies like that. Like, he, he got a name for basically being the guy who made stylish, cheap film noir melodramas. By the 1950s, however, uh, PRC was dead. And so Ulmer really no longer had, like, a home base. The thing about being, even with a Poverty Row studio, the thing about studio work is you get handed work, right? Yeah. Like, here's the next movie on the schedule. What director on contract is free? Cool. There's what you're doing next. Whereas with PRC kind of gone... Ulmer now had to be looking after his own career and finding his own work. To save money for The Man from Planet X, which had been budgeted at $38,000, <laughs> Ulmer did all of the films like matte paintings and design work himself. Okay! So, um, you know, he designs the spaceship and the look of the alien and, and everything like that because he had that background. Now, even spending the minimum amount on this movie, like... It's set in Scotland on the Scottish moors so that they could shoot everything indoors on a soundstage and just cover it up by drowning the entire set in fog. The film still went over budget mm -hmm. to $41,000. So how much over budget is that? Like only... Nothing. Nothing, that's, yeah. That's, so if you recall Cat People... Yeah. Cost $150,000 in 1942. 
And this is less than half that. This is like a less than a third of that eight years later. Yeah. Yeah, he's, uh, these sets are probably just held together with, like, spit, gum, and prayers. Well, as I said, they got to rent those leftover sets from Joan of Arc. Okay. So, which so that, was a big really expense of A movie, yep. Uh, this is entirely a case of, like, oh, hey, we, we can get these sound stages for a week. So, the titular alien was portrayed by a short actor in a suit which features an immovable full head mask. The actor went uncredited, and his identity is lost to time, although the most frequently cited guess is five-foot-tall vaudeville veteran Pat Golden. You'll also see um, some sources guess uh, Billy Curtis, who is a four-foot-two actor, um, who was actually the actor for The Thing from Another World, when the electricity makes um, the alien shrivel up, they, at one point, to do that effect, replace James Arness with Billy Curtis because he's, like, shrinking. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's an interesting decision to go with someone who is small mm-hmm. because all of the monsters we've been seeing have been going in line with Frankenstein's creature of big dude. Yes, big, imposing, intimidating guys. Yeah. The film's lead actor, Robert Clark, was paid $350 uh, for his work. The other actors received the SAG minimum of $175 for the week's work. Clark was 30 years old at the time of the film's production. He had gotten his start at RKO in the post-war period with small roles in a variety of films, including um, The Body Snatcher, where he's one of the medical students, and Bedlam, where he's one of the asylum inmates. Oh, cool. So we've seen him before. Yeah. In, like, crowd scenes. Yeah. In 1950, RKO chose not to renew his contract, putting Clark out of work. This film would be the first for Clark in a number of low-budget sci-fi starring roles throughout the 1950s. The film's lead actress is 31-year-old Margaret Field, who had got her start acting in shorts for Paramount in the late 1940s, often uncredited. Uh, She made a number of feature film appearances in the late 40s, um, either in small roles or uncredited roles. This is sort of one of her only starring roles uh, of her short career. Her daughter is actress Sally Field. That's cool. The villain uh, of the piece is played by William Shallert, who at this time was a young actor at the age of 31, but would go on to a very long career as a character actor in film and television. If you watch a lot of movies or TV from the 50s, 60s, 70s. You've seen him in something. He's probably best remembered today as the dad on the Patty Duke show. But if you are a Trekkie, you probably know him best as the uh, space station administrator from Trouble with Tribbles. Okay. Um, I feel like you did just give us a spoiler by calling him the villain. Yeah, but, but he's not the alien. Mm. Did I, though? <laughs> The movie is very old. (laughs) So The Man from Planet X had a premiere screening in San Francisco on March 9th, 1951, a month before the premiere screening of The Thing from Another World, which earns it the title of the first Alien Invader movie on a technicality, because it definitely was made to cash in on the thing. Uh, Also, it was picked up for wide release by United Artists beginning April 27th. 
uh, 20 days after the premiere of The Thing, and the same day that The Thing went into wide release uh, through RKO. So, really more neck and neck. Uh, And we're certainly seeing it after, due to the, the nature of its production. Yeah. So The Thing, just to remind you, made $1.95 million on its budget of $1.6 million. Yeah, so still a profit, but... An expensive movie. Yeah. Later in the year, The Day the Earth Stood Still would make $1.85 million on a budget of $995,000. So still expensive, but a bigger profit. But a lower gross. Meanwhile... The Man from Planet X, on its $41,000 budget, made, grossed $1.2 million. Damn, so this worked. This cash-in absolutely worked. Yeah, it taught Hollywood a valuable lesson about this new sci-fi genre. Was that it wasn't going away? That it was the next profitable B-movie genre. Yeah. That this is something we don't need to put all this money into, we can make these cheap and they'll still make money. So this is the next, you know, film noir or uh, horror or westerns, right? If, you know, Destination Moon and Thing from Another World and Day the Earth Stood Still, if those movies are like the, like, Dracula, Frankenstein, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde of, like, the beginning of sci-fi, The Man from Planet X is the... Like, monster walks coming in here and being like, you can do this cheap and no one will care. Yeah. But hopefully not in terms of... Um, quality? Quality. Yeah, we'll, we'll have to see. So The Man from Planet X is available on Blu-ray from Scream Factory, the horror sub-label of the Shout Factory home video company. And you can also see it digitally on FlixFling. Okay. And you kind of answered my next question already of, like, you know, we see that this is science fiction. It's cashing in on the science fiction mm-hmm. trend. Mm-hmm. But what kind of made you consider this a horror movie? Is it just because it's being released by Scream Factory? So it is often described as a sci-fi horror movie. The marketing around it really played up the, like, scary monster aspect of it. We're obviously going to have probably a bit of a conversation about it after the movie's over. It was a combination of things. Seeing it released by Scream Factory instead of just Shout Factory was certainly a um, contributing factor. The fact that it's set on, like, the Scottish Moors as well, like... In a castle? Right, is, like, a little weird and kind of edges it in that direction as well. Also, just I wanted to see, like, what's Edgar Gielmer up to? That's... Um, And it seemed, like, historically important enough as being the first, like, one of these cheap cash-in B sci-fi monster movies. Um, I've never seen this, but I have known the poster for a very long time. Like, I I first saw the poster for this movie as, like, a small kid. It's it's (laughs) a very, like, famous etched-in image in my mind. Okay. Um, So I'm excited to see this. Yeah. I'm as well. Folks, um, hopefully you can find a copy to watch along with us. You're going to hear a brief musical interlude, and when we come back, we will discuss The Man from Planet X from 1951, directed by Edgar G. Ulmer. See you on the other side, everybody. (laughs) 
Welcome back, everybody, to Scream Scene. We just finished watching The Man from Planet X from 1951, directed by Edgar G. Ulmer. Sarah, what did you think? It was a fun movie. Yeah. Yeah, I enjoyed myself. Definitely still suffers from it being like an independent Poverty Row-esque movie. I think this movie is definitely a good example of the way that Edgar G. Ulmer uplifted the Poverty Row movies he worked on, though. Because yeah. Yeah. even though certainly it bears all of the hallmarks of those movies, it goes down a lot smoother because he's putting in effort and avoiding some of the normal pitfalls. Absolutely. He still has to deal with um, a script that spins its wheels, but he manages to make me continue to stay engaged. Yeah, exactly. Um, We can discuss more in depth about that, though, once we talk about what that story is. For sure. So it opens with reporter John Lawrence writing a letter about how the man from Planet X has taken the Professor Enid and Dr. Mears. Um, So it's kind of like a cold open. And I'll just, like, put a quick, quick thing in here that, of course, the movie that is co-written by a reporter stars a reporter as its hero. Sure. I also felt that the, uh, like, cold open flashback structure gave it, like, a more noir feel that put it more in, like, Ulmer's um, comfort zone. Sure. We flashback to the reporter starting his journey of how I got here. And he's learning about Planet X, a rogue planet that is coming close to Earth, not necessarily on a collision course, but it's going to come pretty close, kind of like Halley's Comet or whatever. Yeah, it's going to, like, buzz the planet. Yeah. He follows the story to a uh, small island off the coast of Scotland, I think, Mm -hmm. called Bury, where Professor Elliot is set up. And uh, apparently this island is where Planet X will be closest to the Earth. Now, Professor Elliot and John go way back to the war. Mm -hmm. And the professor was like, if I ever get a good scoop, I'll I'll get you in on this. So that's why John's here. John also knows uh, Professor Elliot's colleague, Dr. Mears. Though um, they clearly don't like each other. Yeah. Uh, John, at one point says um, when Dr. Mears is, like, just outside of the room, he should have gotten 20 years for what he did. Yeah, there's, like, a vague, unexplained incident in Dr. Mears' past that means that he's not trustworthy, and he apparently served, like, three years in jail or something like that for it, but apparently it was bad enough that, like, John feels justified saying he should have gotten, like, a life sentence. So, But it's never really, like... Said. Said what that is at all. Yeah. Now, who John does like is Enid, Professor Elliot's daughter, who he last saw when she was, like, a preteen, and now she's 18 and ready for the taken. Yeah, I don't think they explicitly say she's 18. Like, what they do do is, like, keep all that vague. We know that he saw her six years ago, and she was a kid, and now it's six years later, and she's... Legal, but like... In not so many words, yes. Yeah, but like, it's it's sort of how young she is and how old he is are neatly kept uh, vague. 
Although both actors are the same age, basically. Yeah, they're both about 30? Yes. Dr. Mears looks like he's, like, fresh out of college, like, 20. Yeah, he is also 30. Yeah, he, but he, he has a face that's, like, a baby face. He also has Satan facial hair. Yeah, a little bit. Can't trust men with beards, especially not in the 1950s. Clearly, as I look across the couch at my bearded man. Mm-hmm. Enid and John are going on a romantic walk on the Scottish moors when they find uh, what we would know as a probe. They kind of use other words to describe it, but it's a probe. And it has metal that is both stronger yet lighter than steel. They bring it back to the castle, to to the laboratory. Yeah, Dr. (laughs) Yeah, Professor Elliot is like, got his astronomy equipment to monitor Planet X set up in, like, an old crumbling tower that is, you know, sets left over from Joan of Arc. So they bring it back, and uh, Professor Elliot's like, wow, this is fantastic in the classic fantasy-like meaning. Um, Dr. Mears also sees it as fantastic, but in a more profitable way. Mm -hmm. You see, he sees this metal as a great opportunity to get rich if he could only find a way to replicate it in the lab. So he needs some kind of formula. Mm -hmm. Enid drives John back to um, the town so he can stay at the inn, and on her way back she gets a flat tire. So she starts wandering the moors to get back to her place. Yeah, I I think she's just walking home. Okay. So she, she's walking home across the moors. <laughs> yeah, I don't think she, like, wandered into the moors to die. <laughs> and she discovers a rocket ship. Again, they don't use rocket ship to really describe what it is, but that's what it is. And she approaches it, and um, this is when we get our jump scare of the alien peering from the window, and she screams and runs back to the castle. She brings her father, the professor, back to see this thing, um, to prove, like, hey, I I wasn't just, like, making shit up. And he can't believe his eyes, and as they are looking at it, uh, this strange light, this strange ray pops out and, um, focuses in on the professor. Um, and from that moment, he is kind of in a zombie-like state. He only obeys simple commands that are given to him, and he doesn't seem to have any kind of, like, agency. Now, I will mention, Dr. Mears, like, is sneaking around and following them in the shadows, but that's a thing that happens, because once they get back to the castle, they tell Dr. Mears what happened. Right, yeah. So it's not like they were trying to keep anything from him. No, it's just, like, plot-wise, he would have learned about it anyways, but this establishes that he's, like, shifty. Exactly. The next day, John makes his way back to the castle, and, um... They're like, yeah, there's a rocket ship. And so John and the professor go to check it out again. And this is when they um, have a confrontation with the alien. Um, Now, the alien comes out with a ray gun pointed at them. And so they put their hands up. But then they notice that the alien is struggling to breathe um, and is trying to adjust his air valve. He's in a spacesuit, I think, is is the key thing that's worth saying. Since, like, a lot of aliens in later movies, we just ignore that, you know, the Atmosphere. air would be different. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so he, he needs to, like, adjust the air, his uh, breathing gas, to 
him because it might not be air. You don't right. know. I, his, I don't know if it's oxygen. His breathing supply. Yeah, yeah his breathing supply. Um, and he starts to like faint because he can't quite adjust it. John and the professor adjust it for him, and the aliens like, oh, friends, except they can't speak uh, our language. It seems they're only giving off like high pitched like sounds. Yeah, it's all like these electronic like noises Mm -hmm. um and like modulated like tones which is is kind of cool and i also appreciate like that the aliens don't just speak english like out the bat um yeah we have not established the concept of a universal translator yet right he he's basically a little dude in like a very like classic spacesuit, right with like the bubble helmet and the like control panel on the chest or whatever and then, like, appearance-wise, he's he's kind of like your classic gray alien, almost, in that he has, like, a big pointy head and, like, slit black eyes and this, like, slit mouth and then this, like, pointy nose. I, I wouldn't so much call it a classic alien look, because classic alien look has big eyes. Yeah. These are small slits of mm-hmm. eyes. Um, almost like he's, like suspecting you of, like, taking the last slice of pizza. Right. It is just, like, a papier-mâché head with, like, some, like, slits probably literally cut into it. So his expression does never change. Yeah. And there's some, like, lighting from the box and bubble helmet. And, yeah, it is kind of neat. But, anyway, so they... The professor and John are kind of like, cool, we good? And just kind of, like, back away. They get back to the castle and then they look back and realize that like a lost puppy the alien has followed them home sure in the movie itself it's it's portrayed as like a a spooky creepy threatening sort of thing (laughs) they don't really have like lassie music playing as like the alien approaches them you know that is fair it's like oh he followed us yes it's the feeling i got was that it was like a lost puppy okay because they bring him in and Dr. Mears is there now as well. And they're like, okay, we need to figure out a way to communicate. And the alien's just kind of standing in a corner like, yeah, it would be good to communicate <laughs> to you guys that, to explain my motivations and intentions <laughs> Right. Um, but Dr. Mears is like, don't worry. I will use geometry and basic math to communicate with him, and it will be fine. Mm-hmm. Now, at this point, the professor starts to feel ill. He's kind of coughing and, and all of this, so... John takes him to put him to bed. So Dr. Mears is left alone with the alien. And it's clear that he has some kind of, like, sinister plan up his sleeve. Probably around getting the formula for this steel Mm -hmm. metal stuff. Enid is taking care of the professor. And John steps out to head to town to get um, some medicine from the pharmacist. Yeah. Um, Goes to get some Tylenol. Yeah. And it's at that point that we see that um, Dr. Mears has indeed communicated with the alien, seemingly has the formula for the steel, burns the evidence, and then kills the alien by turning off his uh, breathing valve. Yeah, I think his intent initially isn't to kill him because, like, he's all like, I'm going to torture you to get the secrets I need out of you and we're going to ration your your air supply. So I think he's just trying to like torture him, but then he gets interrupted when Enid comes in. Uh, I thought he had fully killed him. No. Yeah, so instead of like the water drip torture, it's like <laughs> suffocation. But as Ben said, Dr. Mears gets interrupted 
during this torturing and uh, is called up to go speak to the professor, um, in which case Dr. Muse lies about being able to communicate with the alien. Um, and Enid goes to check in on the alien mm-hmm. and screams. And we don't see what happens. And presumably the professor and Dr. Mears don't hear her. Yeah. Because the next thing that happens is John comes back and he comes into the room with the medicine and he's like, where's Enid? And Dr. Mears and the professor are like, uh, I don't know, the kitchen? Right. Making a sandwich? I don't know. John can't find her and can't find the alien. So they deduce that the alien has taken her back to the rocket ship. John and Dr. Mears head to the rocket ship, and John leaves Dr. Mears to observe it while he heads back to the castle to look after the professor, because he can't be left alone since he's so sick. When he's at the castle, the constable, the town constable named Tommy, arrives, um, and he just kind of lets himself into the building, and he's he's with a villager, and they're questioning John about some missing villagers. What what, What I love about this is that so we're in Scotland, and John's American, so he sounds American. Theoretically, Professor Elliot and his daughter are English, because, like, it's established that, like, he knows Professor Elliot from the war, but, like, he was loaned to the Americans by the British and all of this. But Professor Elliot and his daughter don't have accents at all. They just sound American as well. And you're kind of like, ah, it's a movie from the 50s, right? Okay, fine. But then the constable... And the villagers have the thickest, most stereotyped Scots accents, like, that you can possibly imagine. Yeah, it's a little ridiculous. So the constable's like, where are these people? And John's like, well, I think I know where they are, but you won't believe me if I tell you, so let me show you. So the villager is left with the professor, while John takes the constable to go see the rocket ship, and that's when they discover that Dr. Mears has gone missing and the rocket ship has been moved. So they head to town. The constable's like, don't panic, people. It's okay. And this is when John kind of shares, like, yep, it's a rocket ship. It's men from outer space. Don't panic. Nobody really believes him at this point. Yeah. Um, and then the villager who was left with the professor comes in. The professor has gone missing as well. Uh, He was seen walking into the fog with the alien and Dr. Mears. Yeah, so now everyone believes that it's an alien because one of the villagers has seen it. Yeah. But now everyone's panicking. Um, Lock your doors, stay indoors, social distancing, wear masks. This whole deal. Eventually, John finds the rocket again, and the missing villagers are there, and they're in the same kind of zombified state that we saw the professor in when that ray hit him yeah the the alien's been like collecting villagers to turn into zombie workers and then like also sending the zombie worker villagers out to get more villagers so that like that process can kind of be sped up Mm -hmm. so seeing that these zombified missing villagers are fortifying where the rocket ship is john makes it back to town and helps Tommy get a message out to Scotland Yard. Um, They send Inspector Porter uh, to help with this, and the plan is to blow up the rocket ship with the military. Easy. Um, But first, John wants to go in and try to save the villagers 
the Professor, Enid, and even Dr. Mears from being caught in the crossfire. So then we catch up to John writing the letter that we saw in the beginning, and he uh, goes in undercover. So he um, makes it into where the rocket ship is and starts telling everyone who's zombified, like, stop working and walk straight in a calm and silent manner and just keep walking till you hit the crowd of military men. Yeah, I feel like a weakness of this zombification process is that... Anyone can give directions. Right, yeah, they'll, they'll obey any commands given by anyone. Yeah. So he tells the professor to go, he tells the villagers to go, but Dr. Mears, he says, wait here. And it's from Dr. Mears in this uh, zombified state that he starts questioning and learns a little bit more about what the aliens' intentions were. So the probe that they found was sent from Planet X to test the soil and atmosphere of Earth because Planet X is entering a new ice age, and the alien was sent to help coordinate the evacuation efforts from Planet X to Earth. But because of Dr. Mears torturing and attacking him, the alien assumed we were hostile and started to like plan basically an invasion force rather than just an evacuation. Hmm. All right. What does that mean? Well, I think you're you're coming up with justifications for things where the movie's a little bit unclear and contradictory cuz like I interpreted a lot of that differently than you did. But what you're saying is a reasonable like smoothing out of some what I interpreted as difficulties and contradictions in the story. Okay. Well, I'm I'm sure we'll dig into that in the discussion. For sure. Um John finds Enid, gets her out of the rocket ship, the alien appears, and they have a little bit of a a scuffle, but John manages to turn off the alien's breathing valve and grabs Enid and Dr. Mears and gets the heck out of Dodge. Now, on the way back to the military men, Dr. Mears starts kind of waking up just in time for the military to start bazooka-ing. That's a word. Uh, the rocket ship. Now, a couple things happen simultaneously. First, we see the alien fix his valve, get up, you know, try to continue his plans. The military are firing, and Dr. Mears comes out of his zombified state, goes, no, we can't destroy the alien, and starts running back, and Dr. Mears gets caught in the crossfire. So he's dead, and his last word is, you fools. And uh, they blow up the rocket ship. Mm-hmm. As they do that, we see Planet X zooming away, just doing a quick U-turn. And then we get kind of a, a last scene where it's like the next day or so, John is with Enid, and they're like, oh man, so glad we got out of that one. Um, who knows if like the alien would have been nice if, Dr. Mears hadn't been torturing him. Could it have been a blessing they were coming? I guess we'll never know. Right. The end. Okay, so clearly you um, are suspect, or, or you have some thoughts about my interpretation of the alien's motivations that we get from Dr. Mears. Um, what do you think well, happened? I think like what your explanation is is a good what they call in comic books no prize explanation 
where um, a no prize is this thing from Marvel Comics from way back in the 60s where if a fan spotted, like, a contradiction between two, like, issues of a comic, Stan Lee would issue a no prize to anyone who could just come up with, like, an explanation to paper over that contradiction. And it's called a no prize because you weren't sent anything. So there's there's no prize. Um, because for me, this movie's biggest weakness is it's trying to play both sides of the philosophical divide between Thing from Another World and Day the Earth Stood Still. Yeah. It's trying to have both, like, an alien invasion that is, like, definitively threatening, and, like, the kind of Frankensteinian, like, oh, he was nice, actually, and it was human, you know, hatred that made him bad or whatever, right? And I don't think it successfully manages to reconcile that the way that it's telling the story, the way that you told the story does reconcile that. But the only word that the script ever uses to describe the inhabitants of Planet X coming here is invasion. And the way that we kind of learn information is we know that Planet X is coming close to Earth. Mears, we know, has figured out how to communicate with the alien. Because we, we, we never see the scene where he communicates with it. We come in at like the tail end where he's like, ah! Now that I've learned how to communicate with you, like, I can get whatever secrets I want out of you or whatever. And so then he tortures the alien. After that, it turns evil, you know, or whatever, and it takes Enid. And then it starts gathering up its zombie army. And the movie wants us to think that the alien turned bad because Mears mistreated him, right? Like, that's how Enid sums up the moral of the story at the end. But when John talks to zombie Mears and asks him, like, hey, what did you find out from the alien about what his deal was? And Mears gives his explanation. The explanation is, like, Planet X was dying, so they, like, moved Planet X out of its orbit and started it traveling along space to find a new planet to live on. They, like, sent their probe in to test our planet and then sent Buddy in as, like, the forward scout to set up, like, a, like a homing beacon so that they would know where to land for the invasion. This is another weak point that I can talk about later, but then for whatever reason, because we blow up his ship and there's no homing beacon, they don't invade. And we just, as you said, see Planet X, like, flying towards Earth. It buzzes the planet just like the scientists have been saying it will, and then it just passes by and, and there's no invasion. To me, what that said was, like, it's an invasion, and these guys don't, you know, breathe the same air even as us. So, I mean, I guess Earth was just like the best, closest, you know, nearest option. But because the only time that Mears could have learned any of that information is before he attacked the alien, that means that Mears knew that the aliens were hostile, you know, or at least intended on, you know, coming and taking their whole population and adding it to our planet, which usually isn't a great you know, no matter how good your intentions are, usually doesn't end well. So he knew all that before he attacked the alien. Now, as the audience, that's not the order of information we're given, but if you, like, reconstruct events, that's how it works. So this idea that, like, Mears is the villain and the bad guy because he attacked the alien, like, doesn't hold up to scrutiny, even though that's clearly what the movie's, like, intent is supposed to be. And obviously Mears is still, like, greedy because what he wants out of it is the, the, the metal formula, but, like, he did 
be like, hey, why are you coming? And this guy was like, hey, to invade. And then he attacked him. Yeah, I, I definitely see what you're saying. I think my interpretation is what they were aiming for, though, given the way the alien, after John helps the alien in the first place, mm-hmm. and he opens his hands mm-hmm. um, and follows them home, yeah. and is just standing there trying to communicate. To me, if it was an invasion, why would he behave that way, right? Oh, for sure. So I think, like, what you're pointing at is definitely a, um, whether it's a failure or a hole or just the script not quite holding together, mm-hmm. um, it's definitely something in the script. I think what they were intending was uh, the interpretation I gave. Yeah, absolutely. The, in- the intent is supposed to be like, oh, the alien was nice until we were mean to it. Um, Bullying is bad, people. <laughs> right. But I guess torture. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> torture is just a very severe form of bullying. Um, <laughs> you know, I think you're right that that was the intent, but because they don't use the phrase like, oh, they're going to evacuate their planet. Like, even before um, John gets to talk to Mears, when he's just talking to the professor, like, hey, professor, what do you think the aliens are here for? And the professor's like, well, the only thing I can think of is invasion. Like, that's the only word they use. So I agree with you that's the movie's intent. I think the script does a bad job of communicating that and is internally inconsistent Mm -hmm. about how it communicates with that. And I think the reason it's so inconsistent is because it's trying to play both sides of that fence. It's trying to appeal to the, the hawks and the doves at the same time, basically. Oh, was um, Day of the Earth Stood Still directed by someone named Dove? No. The thing is from <laughs> No, that <laughs> just happens to... It happens that Howard Hawks is a very hawkish man, but... Um, um, yeah, I think it makes sense for them to be trying to straddle that line. I think um, they definitely could have done it better, but because it's trying to rip off both those movies, mm-hmm. I understand why they're trying to do that. Yeah, and they're, they're, you know, and they're trying to do the Frankenstein, like, oh, the monster, actually, you can have sympathy for him, but he's still, like, he still has to be dangerous enough that, like, it's okay that we bazooka his ship at the end and, like, cut off his air supply and shit. Yeah, I, it, it makes sense that a movie that's just here to cash in doesn't really have, like, its own, you Point know... Of view. Yes. Yeah. Now, that being said, like, I think it's still, like, a fun movie. Mm-hmm. Like I said earlier, it suffers from that poverty row syndrome of spinning its wheels. There's a lot I kind of skimmed over where we're at the police station, at the rocket ship, at the police station, on the way to the rocket ship, it's... on our way back to the police station, <laughs> to on our way to the wharf, on our way to the rocket ship. It's definitely got that B-movie thing of, like, there's five locations and most of the story is just people moving back and forth between them. But the directing mm-hmm. um, and the mise-en-scene, like, the, the set pieces and everything, helped me stay in here. Yeah. Whether it was the way we were cutting between the locations, um, the camera movement, or even just um, the paintings of trees that were that were done very well, um, the model shot of where both the castle and the rocket ship are, um, it shows a level of like effort or at least expertise in doing this type of thing that is in making movies. Right. 
um, that Elmer really brings here. Yeah, I think this movie's a great example of, like, the difference a director makes. Yeah. Because the script is just, like, a standard kind of boilerplate script of this type. You know, the acting isn't really anything special. It's serviceable, but yeah. it's really it. Yeah, and it has, as you say, a lot of the same structural problems that these kind of movies have. It's very obviously cheap, but Ulmer has a control of style and mood and visuals that helps like elevate everything in a way that it wouldn't if it was shot more pedestrian. And it's a lot of different things, like the as you just said, right? Like, he keeps the camera moving. He picks interesting angles to look at things. He frames stuff well. Um, the model that Sarah mentioned is, like, a tabletop model of, like, the moors with, like, the castle and the rocket ship that they can shoot with, like, a bunch of fog on it to pretend like they're getting big wide shots of the moors, which helps the fact that, like, the moors set is just them on a soundstage which, with a bunch of dry ice it helps that feel way more expansive and big as it's supposed to be. And also, because it's a constructed thing, it can match the set a lot better than if they had just thrown in, like, stock footage of, like, a real moor. Absolutely. Um, the, the stylistics don't really succeed in making the movie less obviously cheap, but they make the visuals, like, eerie and weird enough that it doesn't matter because it helps create, like, an atmosphere. Like, the trees don't look natural, but it's like that Tim Burton thing where they look weird enough that it helps you get into the eerie, creepy mood that the movie's trying to create. Tim Burton, but also German expressionism. Right. You see a little bit of that inspiration here. Oh, for sure. Because Almer was doing this kind of set designing in a German expressionist theater. Yeah. Or theater in time and the and the films like he he worked on like he worked on the golem he worked on a bunch of those films from that period yeah Yeah, absolutely so it's kind of neat to see it still like trickling in here it's not like caligari level um but it's just like you know you see some sprinkles yeah and like the strength of the design work really helps carry things through because like the alien for instance like kind of sucks Like, the design is a very classic-feeling design, but, like, the completely immovable papier-mâché head means it's never really convincing as, like, a real creature. Yeah, he can't turn his head. He can't... Um, He can't speak because that mouth doesn't move. That's why we completely omit that scene. And because of his, like, short stature... The only way that he really does seem threatening is with his ray gun. Yeah, he's very easily dispatched because he's got, like, an oxygen valve that's more easy for enemies to get to than him. Yeah, he's always struggling. Right? And, yeah, he, like, you can just kind of kick him over, and he's just this little guy. Even his, as we said earlier, like, his, you know, grand plan of turning everyone into zombies is, like, easily defeated because you can just tell the zombies to go home. Yeah. And, like, but more, more than that, it's just, like, the fact that the alien's face can't, like, Emote. Emote in any way. I think one of the things that that ends up doing is maybe that helps play to what I was talking earlier about, like, playing both sides of the fence, because then it's like Kuleshov effect. Like, is the alien a sad puppy dog, or is he a menacing invader? Um, I think... (laughs) Why not both? (laughs) I think you're right. I think the thing that helps the design is the decision to basically put a light in the helmet 
that is always underlighting the face. So he constantly has creepy Bella Lugosi underlighting no matter what's going on. So even though the face never really looks real, it always looks creepy. And that's kind of the key thing that it needs to, to work. Absolutely. Speaking of, like, the acting being kind of just there. Yeah. Um, I think the cast acquits itself well in the sense that, like, everyone's playing stock roles, for one thing. Nobody's so bad that they're unwatchable. I think Margaret Field is probably the weakest in the cast because, like, you know, it's the standard woman problem of she doesn't have much to do other than scream, but even when she's doing the not much else, she's never really, like, convincing about it. Oh, I thought she gave a really interesting performance of, like, not just doing the favorite scream, but having moments of, like, being too shocked to even scream. Um, I thought she did a neat job. I'm not saying she's a standout, but I thought it was... I thought she was good. Okay. Um, yeah, like, Howard Clark, who's playing John, he's cookie-cutter standard hero. He looks like, um, Howard Stark from, like, the Agent Carter TV show. Yeah. Um... It's the pencil mustache. I think that, Dr. Um, Mears is the weakest oh, for me. I completely disagree. I thought William Shallert gave the film's best performance. Oh, okay. Well, whatever. Um, so I, that's interesting. Yeah. I think he's clearly having the most fun, uh, at least, and he's varied enough in what he's doing. Like, I don't know, I preferred him quite a bit to um, Dr. Carrington from The Thing. I thought that yeah. Mears was a lot more believable as, like, an unscrupulous dude who, you know, wants this steel formula so he can make a bunch of money, but is still, like, you know, a scientist and, like, a human being... Uh, as opposed to, like, Carrington's, like, much more, like, obviously, like, evil kind of guy. Um, so I like William Shallard. I do think, of the cast, the person who's putting in the most effort, he's not doing the best job, but the person putting in the most effort is Roy Engel, who's playing Tommy the Constable. I was about to say it's the Constable. Like, like he's he's giving it. He, yeah, he's doing this accent that he's really trying to, like, be consistent. Like, he's not a, um, Irish. He's from Missouri. I looked it up. <laughs> um, so he's doing this over-the-top accent, but, like, he's trying to really give, like, a performance as, like, the authority figure in this town who, like, needs to keep all these, like, people, like, not panicked and, like, doesn't really believe this guy, but then, like, once he sees what he's up against, it's like, okay, it's you and me against the world. And then, like, he does all this, like, subtle, small stuff when, like, Scotland Yard shows up where, like, he's like, oh, shit, like, I gotta look good for Scotland Yard. And he's, like, as the inspector's just talking with John, he's, like, in the background, like, tidying his, like, uniform and trying to, like, pat his hair down and stuff. Like, Roy Engel is fucking going for it in this performance that no one's paying attention to and does not matter. And, like, it's not, it's not good. I don't think his results pay off. But he's definitely the guy who's trying the most. Yeah. We recognize it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. We see you. But all of the roles in this are stock characters. They're pretty similar to the kinds of stock characters we've had in these kinds of B-movies, like, through the 40s with horror movies. I do think that this movie helps solidify kind of what the core cast of specifically sci-fi movie stock characters are because it's slightly different than horror movies but basically it's you have 
a reporter hero who might have a military background just to make him, like, masculine enough. (laughs) Then you have the good old professor, the good old professor's hot daughter, and the evil bad scientist, right? Okay. And that's kind of similar to what we would have in, like, a 40s horror movie, except that I don't think you would have, like, the good old professor, and, like, you might have... the good old professor, if it's not the dad, he's the evil one. Right, exactly. And the evil scientist is also, like, a European count. Um, (laughs) And there's, like, a few more ancillary people. But, like, this this is the core group to the point where, like, this is also the cast makeup of, like, most Godzilla movies of, like, the (laughs) 1960s, right? Like That's true. They always do love the reporters in there. Yeah. I definitely see what you're saying. Um, I think... This is a great example of horror tropes being transplanted into sci-fi, both in terms of, like, the atmosphere of this film, um, people being, like, out in the middle of nowhere. It has a bit of that old dark house feeling to it, as well as the, like, European small town, like, not trusting outsiders. It's still the castle on the moors with the fog being pumped in and the... And the lightning! Right, and the single monster figure that's like following you through the fog and attacking the one girl and you we still even have a um like a a mob of angry villagers at the end when they go out to the moors to like attack the rocket ship you know yeah it's 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 all the standard kind of tropes still so i think that leads nicely into a question of is this horror i think for me i think it represents an offshoot kind of like dark eyes of london did Um, I think we should still rank it because it is these horror tropes transplanted. Um, It's kind of like making science fiction with horror tools. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's not like, you know, that pure, good crack horror. Right. But it's, um, (laughs) you know, a different variety. Yeah, I... That's, I think that's the perfect way to say it, is is making science fiction with horror tools. Because it's like... They know they were going to make this alien invasion movie, but like, because they're trying to, they're trying to beat the movies that invent that genre to theater, right? So they can't, they Uh, don't know what the genre looks like to copy it. So they have to copy something else. So yeah, it's like, it feels like a horror movie. It doesn't like read like a horror movie. Like I feel like if you read the script... You'd be like, this is sci-fi. Right. What makes it horror is the way it's being shot and and the way that, you know, we're paying more attention to things like the alien coming out of the fog right at Mm -hmm. you and the girl screaming and the, you know, this kind of stuff. Um, Yeah, I think that's such a great way to put it is we don't know how to make a sci-fi movie, so we're just going to make a horror movie with this sci-fi stuff in it. Yeah, and I, I totally agree with you about, like, I think this ranks. I think this is horror. But I think it certainly, like, establishes now this, like, alien invasion subgenre as not necessarily needing to be a horror subgenre from this point on. Yeah, I would agree. Yeah, cool. Um, Speaking of establishing subgenres, I do just want to point out that, like, it's not the first time this idea pops up, like, in fiction, because it's from, I think, War of the Worlds originally. But in terms of movies and pop culture that way... This is the earliest version of the, like, we need a new planet style aliens. Like, our planet's dying, so that's why we're invading yours. Sure. Yeah. These guys, like, 
got their planet off of its orbit <laughs> to get it moving. So with that kind of technology, A, shouldn't you have been able to, like, fix your planet? Right. Or B, move it into an area where, like, it would be better? Like, oh, you're like having an ice Like a temperate area? Yeah, yeah like, move it okay. closer to the sun or something? Wait, okay, so before we go to ranking, actually, I do want to talk about this, because this yeah. is some bullshit. <laughs> okay, so, like, yeah, this is, I think, the weakest part of this movie is the stuff around the ending. Like, the stuff where they explain the alien's motivation, because as I went into earlier, like, it's just not... It's muddled. It's muddled. But also, how we stop the invasion from happening. Mm -hmm. Because, like, why does destroying his ship stop the invasion? Well, I guess you could look at it in a kind of, like, his rocket ship being, like, a tether. Mm -hmm. You know, like, um, a volleyball at the end of the, the pole, and as soon as he cut it... That that ball goes. And Great metaphor. Like, Great metaphor, Jordy. <laughs> um, Listen, I, I do marketing for a tech company. I'm very adept at taking oh this complex thing yeah. and just simplifying it in no, some way. It's just like such a classic Star Trek thing to do. <laughs> okay. Where were you thinking for ranking? Well, Sarah, I figured that like a good spot to start my search was where we ranked thing from another world um, okay. just because it's the most Alike. comparable yeah thing to judge this by just to get started obviously this isn't as good as thing from another world so i just started like kind of scrolling down from there until i found a movie that maybe you could argue isn't as good right like something where it was like okay where does the quality dip enough that this feels comparable the thing about this movie is like we said earlier this is a crappy B-movie that is uplifted on the strength of its direction and its art design and its visuals, right? So it's kind of punching above its weight class, so I'm willing to, like, rank it a lot higher than most of those kinds of movies. So the first movie that hit me as, like, meh, is Dead of Night at 33. Um, because Dead of Night is an anthology film, and, like, it has like, one, maybe two really good segments, and then it has, like, a neat framing device, and then it has, like, some weaker segments and some outright bad segments, whereas, like, the quality level throughout The Man from Planet X is consistent. Um, it's, it's a consistently good experience that you can just sit and watch, and it goes down smooth. And below Dead of Night is The Leopard Man, which is kind of one of the more inconsistent... Val Luton movies as well. So my ceiling, the highest I would put The Man from Planet X is 33. That's the highest I'll go. Okay. So then I started looking for like, okay, what's a movie that this is definitely better than though? Like, where do I stop and say, no, I would much rather. And so we're going through and, and you know, there's these movies here that are very like, oh, this is good, but, right? Like, The Man They Could Not Hang, The Black Room, The Spiritualist, like, are all, like, good examples of, like, this is good, but... And I think that's how this movie feels for me. And then I hit um, The Wolf of the Malveneurs, Le Lou de Malveneur, at number 50. And that movie is also a cash-in movie, right? It's yeah. trying to, like, copy a bunch of stuff from Hollywood. But I feel like it's a lot more uneven because the pieces it's trying to put together don't fit together as well, or at least 
the director of that film did not have the skill to make them fit together as well as, like, Edgar G. Ulmer has enough skill to make you kind of ignore or forget the things in this movie that don't really hold together. So that was my floor was 50. So my range is 33 to 50. Okay. <laughs> We're going to have some trouble, I guess, huh? I think so. Maybe not, but we'll see. My range is lower than yours. I see why you were first looking at the thing from another world. Mm -hmm. I started at Dark Eyes of London at number 75. Okay, I get that too, because it's another movie you identified as a branching off point. Exactly. And I felt that Dark Eyes of London, yes, it's another branch, but it's still closer to pure horror than Man from Planet X. Mm. Because it's focused on the... Um, criminal procedural kind of structure. It's, it's also like it was pretty gruesome. Like, it's focused on these series of murders. Like, Man from Planet X has horror, like, stylistics, I think, more than Dark Eyes of London does. But you're right that, like, Dark Eyes of London has a more horror plot. Yeah, it's content, for sure. Mm -hmm. So I was like, okay, I'm going to start looking below Dark Eyes of London. My eyes drew to another... Uh, I, I don't... I hesitate to call this a cash-in movie. Sure. But Spanish Dracula in mm. number 98. Okay, yeah. Where it is kind of a, a unique ripping off of something where they looked at the dailies of regular Dracula and were like, let's do this, but more. Turn mm -hmm. it up to 11 and in Spanish. Yeah. Um, and I don't think it works. We've discussed this. Listen to the episode if you disagree. But I considered that my floor... I would not put The Man from Planet X below that, because at least The Man from Planet X is making something new. It's not just trying to do something but more. Right. They, like I've said, um, they're making science fiction with horror tools. Like, they're trying to do something new. Yeah. And then, with that as my floor, I kind of shimmied up and got stuck around the movies that are, like, above Genuina at mm -hmm. 91... Um, Kenyuina is another cash-in movie, but kind of above that, you know, you have some weird movies that yes. aren't completely consistent. and aren't, Are neither good nor bad. Yeah, and so then I settled on the 86 Devil Doll, um, because that is like three different types of movies crammed, <laughs> crammed into one. Yeah. Um, I could see Man from Planet X going above that, but not probably higher. So my range is 86 to 98. Oh, okay. So let's look at what's between your bottom, your floor, and my ceiling. So, so 50 to 86? Yeah. Okay, so that's 68, which is The Mummy's Tomb from 1942, which is, that's Ooh. the one where he comes to America, or is that the one where we go to find him in Egypt? No, he's in America, kind of like a stalker, uh, Jason prototype. Um, we see two teens in a car mm -hmm. get kind of like spooked by him. Um, yeah. So, Ooh. The Mummy's Tomb is interesting because it's a proto-slasher movie, but I don't think, like, on its own, it's as strong as The Man from Planet X. Like, they both have a problem of their central monster not really being threatening. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, Karis shambling along fucking small-town America never really quite gets there. I think I like The Man from Planet X 
I think I like its visuals more, and I think I like its um, focus a bit more. All of those mummy movies get really... Um, Blurred together. They get really tied down by the fact that, like... They're wrappings. <laughs> <laughs> no, just, like, the, 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 the threat of the mummy gets really, like, confused because they're also always doing the thing with, like, oh, the high priest wants to, like, get laid. Yeah, they're um, always following orders. Directly above the mummy's tomb, we also have, like, a lot of other, what I would call, like, confused movies. Um, you know, like Dracula's Daughter. Yeah. It's it's not a lesbian vampire movie. It's just confused vampire movie. Um, <laughs> it's question, It's a questioning vampire yeah, movie. It's, um, I think that's a really good point that the, these are all confused movies. The Man from Planet X might be a little clumsy in what mm-hmm. it's trying to say, but it's not confused it, about what it's trying to say. Yeah, it knows what it's doing, and what it's doing is ripping off some other movies. Like, it's, <laughs> it's very clear on it. So what's the first film going up that doesn't feel confused? So above Dracula's Daughter is Murders in the Rue Morgue, which might be the definition of a confused movie. Absolutely. Um, and then directly above that is Dr. X. Ooh, now, that also has a very unique look to it. Yes, because it's got that two-tone technicolor. It also fumbles a bit because it has also a reporter, but this time he's the comedic relief, not the hero. But he's he's the protagonist still, which is a big problem with that movie, is that our protagonist is also our comic relief character. Yeah. Okay, I think, for me, I would, I would prefer to watch Dr. X. Mm-hmm. Again, rather than The Man from Planet X, to me, if I want to watch The Man from Planet X again, I'll just watch The Thing from Another World. <laughs> Fair. But I think, given the strength of who the protagonist is, and like, mm, and I guess with like its framing device, I mean, Dr. X is pretty strong. Like, it has Dr. that comedic a- relief, but like... It always is you guessing. Everyone has a potential alibi. It's got or... that pre-code horror feeling where things are a little more edgy. Yeah. Okay. What's? Oof. I feel like we're in the right spot. Just for the record, what's immediately above Dr. X is the original Unheimliche Geschichten anthology. Mm. And directly above that is the 1913 Student of Prague. Yeah, no, I'm feeling good with putting this below Dr. X. Um. Yeah, I think I can... I think I can I can grok with that. I think, yeah, below Dr. X, above Murders in the Room Org. Yeah, because it's definitely not confused. But I, I, the thing that I'm grappling with with Dr. X is, like, sure, its protagonist is the comedic relief, and he's also just kind of annoying with, like, that, like, early 30s, like, chauvinism mm-hmm, blah yeah. shit. Everything else really, really works in that movie. The villain is more, like, clear and strong, and threatening, and, like, you know what the deal is, whereas, like, you know, this movie's not only confused about, like, is the alien the bad guy, but then that also means that Dr. Mears being the bad guy becomes confused, too, so it's just, like, because it's trying to play to both sides of the fence, it's not as strong. Yeah. Yeah, I'm happy with this. And hey, they both have X in the name. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. All right, so coming into the list at the new number 66 is The Man from Planet X, from 1951, directed by Edgar G. Ulmer. If you would like to see this list, you can go to our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. 
There you can find links to the other episodes we've mentioned today, as well as our appeals box. If you would like to contest this or any other ranking, you can drop us a line through our Ask box on Tumblr, you can email us directly at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com, or reach out on Twitter at underscore screamscene. Screamscene updates every Wednesday on SoundCloud, iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, and wherever fine podcasts can be found by subscribing to our RSS feed. If you'd like to give the show a hand, you can do that by leaving us a rating or a review on the podcasting app of your choice. Uh, That really helps the show out by getting it found and featured by the various algorithms of those various apps. If your app of choice does not have the ability to rate a review, you can kind of do the legwork yourself by sharing the show on social media and letting people know that it's a good time. Um, And if you have the means... You can also help the show out by heading over to our Patreon at patreon.com slash podcast, where you can become a patron of the night for as little as a dollar a month. So that's patreon.com slash podcast. What are we... Oh, no, wait. I know what we're watching next week. It's um, The Gorilla Bride. Bride of the Gorilla. Yeah. Directed by Kurt Siedmack, starring Lon Chaney and Raymond Burr. Great. Looking we, forward to it. We will see you next week, Creatures of the Night. Bye! Bye! Bye!